Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see everybody. And for those that are online, welcome. Glad that you're able to tune in as well. It's a blessing to gather in the Lord's house and worship Him. Uh, it just seems, this is our human frailty speaking, it just seems better, though, when the sun's shining outside and we feel spring coming on. And yet, uh, He's the God of all the seasons. So we're thankful for this day. This is the one He has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. Uh, we're going to be going back to 1 John, once again, 1 John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles there, you can use the pew Bible in front of you, uh, or in a couple of cases, behind you, if you need it. Um, uh, 1 John chapter 1, again, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and my intention is to finish up what we started last week. We'll see how we do with that. If you're able to stand, by all means, please do so as we read God's holy word together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So there are a few that were not here last week, so just a, a brief review um, is in order. Just as we looked last week at this, the book overall, there seems to be a structure suggested, at least the intention of this book is very clearly stated by a re the repetition of a phrase seven times, at least through the book, actually on seven occasions. It's actually repeated about 12 times through the book, and we'll see that uh, as we go along. But the phrase, we are writing these things because, or so that, and kind of what goes along with that a little bit is also the idea of proclamation. We're proclaiming these things so that, and that's three or four times in the book. So John is very intentional about this epistle, and he is not hiding his purposes at all. And when you add all of the purposes together, it adds up to uh, the revelation of, of uh, or maybe I should say the, the manifestation of a pastor's heart for God's people as he desires to help them live in the midst of a world that was turning upside down in terms of persecution, in terms of being scattered, in terms of all kinds of afflictions and difficulties, and most particularly, as we noted last time, in this case, he's dealing with people who are being driven apart by false teachers, by people who are coming along and calling the, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ into question, who are calling the the obligation to walk in holiness before God and one another into question. And it's ripping the church apart. 
So John is, all the purposes that he talks about here in this book have to do with standing fast in the face of those difficulties and challenges. But we noted last time that this first reason, which is found in verse 4, that he is writing, seems to be uh, a little bit of a, uh, it makes you think about it, a little bit of a double take. Why is he starting with this one? I'm writing so that our joy may be complete or full. And we noted last time, at least this is my opinion, my thought on this, is that John is looking uh, at a church that has been in difficulty, has been striving against uh, these, these challenges, and they need to be reminded of the joy of their salvation. They need to be reminded that uh, this Christian life that they are engaged in is not just a slogging through the mud and trying to endure. There is that aspect of perseverance and so on, and sometimes there is mud to slog through. But well, false teaching and the division that that, that causes creates so much heartache. And, and just think about it in terms of our political culture at this stage of the game here in our country and in the West, the world at large. It's awfully hard to find joy, peace, and contentment in a world that changes its tune every five seconds about what's actually happening. And who trying to figure out who the bad guys are, who the good guys are. Are there any good guys? Um, are they all bad? Um, or there are some out there that are just thinking everybody's, you know, all means well, maybe they're just stupid. Uh, you know, whatever it is, we have all different kinds of uh, thoughts out there about what is happening. And joy is not a word that I think characterizes our society these days. Right? And how can you be joyful in, in such incredible uncertainty? And yet that's exactly what John is saying here. I'm writing these things so that your joy may be complete, even in those kind of circumstances. So my desire, uh, as we go through this first reason, it, it, even as it's, it's fairly heady theological stuff in these opening verses, and yet to recognize that John wants us to understand that we can be confident in the, uh, the news that comes from divine sources. And that is a source of joy. No matter what afflictions are going on in your life, no matter what uncertainties and challenges are around us, whether it's political unrest, relational issues, false teaching, uh, confusion about what's true, you can still find joy in your salvation because we have a very, very certain witness to the truths that um, we call these days Orthodox Christianity. So we looked at verse 1 last time and spent our time there, uh, really finding joy in the witness. Uh, this is the, the, John is focusing on the realities that they saw. The, he's speaking of the the character and credentials of the apostles who were the eyewitnesses of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ saw the evidences of his deity over and over again and saw how they fulfilled every single prophecy of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ fulfilled as the Messiah. 
they not only saw the evidences of his deity, but they also saw, and, and this is kind of, uh, again, you think about this for a minute, uh, the, a large emphasis here is on the physical reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, John is speaking into uh, a, a society, that a, a Christian society, a Christian culture that is being hit by heresy after heresy. And they're all, those heresies, those false teachings are all having to do with the nature, person and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he all, is he totally all God? He's just the spirit being? There was that one that was out there. Is he all man and not God at all? Just a really great guy? That was out there. Um, is he, uh, uh, you know, the spirit indwelling a fallen, uh, a fallen human body? Um, there was that one that was out there. And all of this, all of this from the adversary, all this confusion when what Christ demonstrated, of course, in his earthly ministry was absolute perfect obedience to the law of God, lived a sinless life, and showed forth the power of, of the Godhead in all that he did and all that he said. And the false teachers were out there saying, don't listen to those apostles. <laughs> you know, I guess it didn't matter that you know, they spent three years with, in his presence and were intimately involved in everything, saw such things as the, trans, the resurrection and the transfiguration and the healing of the blind and the raising of the dead and all those other things. John is focusing here on, look, these guys that are ripping the church apart really don't have any credentials. We're the ones who saw. And we didn't just observe, we investigated closely. That's what that looked upon is there in verse 1. And not only did uh, we look upon him, uh, oh, I missed the first one, we heard, we heard what he said. Uh, we observed it, we saw it lived out, we investigated it, we've actually seen it with understanding, and beyond that, we, we touched him. And the, again, as I mentioned last time, it wasn't just, a, you know, they were able to put their arm around him or pat him on the back or something like that. This has to do with, it's a bit of a, it's going on in that investigation kind of mode. Sure, there's physical contact that was there, but the emphasis is upon a touch like a, like a, a, a blind person would do trying to figure out what something is. It's that kind of close contact, touching, uh, a, 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 a groping in the darkness to discern what is in front of you. It's that level of investigation that, they, that John says that they did. So in other words, you can trust this witness. You can chuck the other ones. It's the apostolic witness joined with the prophetic witness that came during the time of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ says he's building his church on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. That's the, the solidness of your witness that you put your confidence in. And you can find joy in that. It's not going anywhere and it cannot be shaken. Now, he ends up verse 1 by saying we've, the, the, these things concerning the word of life. And again, we talked about that as the, uh, 
certainly the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and but also the gospel that he preached and lived out. So really, I think combining those thoughts, the gospel revealed in Christ's person and work, the, the disciples saw that, and now they are going to proclaim it. So yeah, depending on which translation you have, uh, you may have some punctuation there that indicates that, verses, uh, t- that verse 2 is a big parenthetical. If you follow this, this, the main thread of this, this passage, it really is verse 1, and then it jumps down to um, verse 3. Verse 2 is like, oh, okay, let me tell you about this life. This life. Um, this is one reason, the parenthetical is one reason why I think it's appropriate to think of the word of life as referring to the person of Jesus Christ as well, because of verse 2. The life was made manifest, or made clear, it was shown forth without any doubt what was there. And we've seen it and testified to it, repeats that, and now proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and made manifest or made clear to us. So really really the, the thought of, of Jesus and, and the gospel message that he proclaimed and, 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 and showed to be true by his actions, they were witnesses of that. So the witness concept goes on here, but it, it shifts a bit from um, you know, the physical realities that were there, the things that they saw, to really talking about here in verse 2, the life uh, to which they were um, witnesses. But uh, that's a little bit more of a um, subjective thing. It's, not, it's a little more metaphysical, right? It's not, uh, it's not uh, you know, someone you can see and actions you can do. It's, it's more of what they experience in their own lives and in the lives of others as Jesus Christ, who is the one who provides the living water in whom is life, and he, he is the life of God. Uh, they saw that as well, and they found joy in that life. Now notice it says here that life was made manifest. I've already defined what that word means. I'm, I'm using uh, a, a different kind of word in my, in my uh, outline, if you're filling in the blanks there that uh, is intended to be uh, pointed. Joy in a life that is obvious. It's obvious. We live in a society just like they did of skeptics. Right? And certainly, if you look around... This goes back to the whole idea of revelation and, and, and the witnesses and who's saying what and what's happening. Is there reason to be skeptical in this world? Oh, yeah. You know, the skeptic or the, uh, you go from skepticism to cynicism, which is where you start getting hopeless about it and think it doesn't really matter anymore. But the skeptic goes, uh-huh, right, Sure. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. And, I mean, you had people in Jesus' day saying, even the disciples saying, well, Lord, show us the Father. (laughs) 
And Jesus going, have I been so long with you that you don't know that the Father is right here in me? You've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, that one had to kind of blow their minds. Yeah, there's plenty of reason for skepticism. Because you can't trust what anybody says. But John says, this life, what we're telling you about here, and what we have been telling you about, this isn't something that was done in a corner. Wasn't hidden. Jesus' life from the, from the time of his birth was a public event. His ministry was public. His, his death was public. His resurrection was public. And the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit and his followers from that day until now has been public. You look at the book of Acts and it's all about the public ongoing impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ that turned the Roman world upside down as the church was established, as the Holy Spirit moved, as mighty works were done, and as the gospel was preached. It was obvious. And yet many people, maybe even us sometimes, are, are like those that go speeding through some speed trap. Not that I've ever done that. Um, <laughs> without having seen the police officer and then wondering why I got stopped. I didn't see you. It's like, well, he was right there. He was right there. If we don't see, maybe I didn't see the police officer or maybe I didn't see the speed limit sign because maybe I really wasn't looking for it. Just as soon pretend it wasn't there. But John is saying, this was obvious. This was made clear. There was no fudging about it. There was no confusion about it. Jesus, the uh, Jewish leaders of his day absolutely knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, I and the Father are one. When he said, before Abraham was, I am. He knew exactly what he was saying, and they knew exactly what he was saying. There was nothing unclear about it at all. What, was, what the problem was is they didn't want to hear it. In John chapter 20, in John's gospel, John says, now, what I've written here, basically, is just scratching the surface. He said, if all the things that Jesus did, did and said were written down, uh, he, a little bit of hyperbole there, but says, I don't suppose the world would contain the books that could be written. What we have is just a, a representation, the highlights of Jesus' earthly ministry. And yet he says in John chapter 20, but these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It, it's obvious what it says. And the eyewitness accounts that we have in the Word that are joined also with eyewitness accounts 
and testifyings even of unbelievers and pagans of that day that affirmed and show that the things that Jesus said and did, he said and did. And yet, we need, we need still that idea of the uh, firm eyewitnesses. So, um, in Acts chapter 12, uh, remember, um, they needed to find somebody um, to uh, take the place of Judas. And so we read there in chapter 12 of the book of Acts, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, all of those things that were verifiable, witnessed, and seen. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. In other words, recognize that they had been there and seen it and, and knew, knew that Jesus truly was risen from the dead. They recognized the importance of the eyewitness there. But it's obvious. Um, I remember many years ago talking with a young man who uh, was wrestling with the idea of submitting himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, it was after a, an invitation in a public service that I was at. And I was in the back uh, talking with people that wanted to talk about things. And he came in and he said to me, um, well, you know, I went, I went uh, to this other church and went down uh, the aisle after the service and prayed a prayer, and they gave me verses of assurance and told me I was saved. He says, but uh, I, I still feel wretched, and the fact of the matter is, is I don't even know if Jesus really existed. It's not an uncommon thing. You know, get people to come down, make an emotional decision, and tell them that they're saved when they have no clue about what they just did. That's greater deception. So, I spent my time, I spent about two hours with that guy uh, that, that evening. Missed a very good potluck after church that night. But it was well worth it. Uh, and starting with the Gospels and starting with the eyewitness and the things we're talking about here, went on to Josephus, went on to Pliny the Elder, went on to you know, Roman accounts, Greek accounts, all those other things that testified and verified that what God said about his son was true in the Word. Now, I would love to tell you that after two hours, he was like, oh, yeah, okay, now I'm, I'm good. No, but he... Uh, He's like, all right, I'm going to think about this. I've often wondered what's happened to that, whatever happened to that young man. And every once in a while, I pray for him. And uh, I hope that uh, eventually he came to faith in Christ. As he finally gave in, he was kind of an agnostic kind of a guy. And he just submitted himself to the Lord and his revelation that was clear and obvious and verified and eyewitnessed over and over and over again. Um, John Stott, some of you have, may have read uh, uh, his books in the past, uh, theologian, um, said this at this point, he who is from the beginning is he whom the apostles heard, saw, and touched. It is impossible to distinguish between Jesus and the Christ, the historical and the eternal, as if there's some division. 
They are the same person, God and man. Such an emphasis on the historical revelation of the invisible and intangible is still needed today. Not least by the scientist trained in the empirical method, the radical who regards much in the Gospels as myths, but you cannot demythologize the incarnation. You can't because of all the eyewitnesses that were there. And the mystic who tends to become preoccupied with his subjective religious experience to the neglect of God's objective self-revelation in Jesus Christ. He's right there staring us in the face. And we have, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, no excuse. And yet, I thought as I was going through this, yes, it's obvious, but uh, we need to be warned. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but I, my family will tell you that I can go, I did it just last night. My wife said, do we have any salad fixings in the refrigerator? I was, went through and went, well, we have this, that, and the other. Oh, but, you know, we don't have any lettuce. I've got to go get lettuce. And uh, my mother came in and goes, are you sure we don't have lettuce? I, thought, I said, no, I looked. Karen said, no, I, I looked. Mom comes out with a full bag of three romaine hearts, you know. And I'm like, how in the world did I miss that? Sometimes we can easily miss what is obvious? As John said in John, God, John's Gospel, chapter 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So just because something is obvious, because of the fallenness of our hearts and the rebellion of our hearts, we don't want to see it. Uh, or even if we say we want to see it, we don't. The Lord, has, the Lord has to regenerate us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, so this is a life that is obvious, but let's, let's move on. Is we've, and this is a, a bit of a repetition, and yet he is, uh, John is not just saying, again, about the, the physical realities and you know, the, the, uh, the, the historical aspects of it, but also a recognition that this eyewitness um, to this life, this is a life that is verifiable um, through the authority that comes to them because of the Lord's uh, work in their lives. So as, there's a personal witness. We've already talked about that. We have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you. This, this, uh, this thought of the proclamation it comes from the word uh, kerux or keru, uh, keruso, which has to do with the, a herald who is proclaiming something on behalf of an authority. The spokesman. Uh, that is, by the word, way, what, uh, another word that's often used for those who are preaching. Um, it's, it's, it's a commissioned thing. It, it's... It's a kind of, basically what, what John is saying is not only have we seen this, but we have the official stamp of divine approval as we are proclaiming on his, on his behalf what he has done and what he has revealed to us and what he's called upon us to preach. All of this adds up not just to 
a reliable witness because of the thoroughness of the witness, but also an authoritative witness that's shown forth in the evidence of their own lives changed, but also the commission that comes uh, that is put upon them as apostles, a commission that was not shared by the false teachers. And this life is not only... Uh, obvious and verifiable this life that that we find joy in in fact one of the principal reasons that we do find joy in it is because it's eternal yesterday had the 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 privilege of being part of honoring the memory and life of our brother Wayne's wife And yes, there were tears. And yet, there was joy there too, wasn't there? Because we know that she knew the Lord of all life, the one who is eternal life. And even, you know, in Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, those he raised from the dead, of course, that was repeated by uh, some of the apostles as well. It's a Lazarus, for example. Well, yes, he was raised. He would he was he would die again, physically speaking. But that raising from the dead basically was the shot across the bow to the adversary and to a fallen world who wants to deny the deity of Jesus Christ and saying, "I'm Lord over life and I'm Lord over death." And that's what. Uh, what uh, John is speaking of here in the latter part of verse 2. Because this life, this eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us, eternal life embodied in Jesus Christ. He's the one who said, uh, you may take my life, but I'm actually the one who is laying down my life and I will take it up again. This commandment I have from the Father. For all the hatred of the world against the Lord Jesus Christ, they couldn't really kill him. They could go through the motions, but he is eternal life. And he he truly died, but then he truly took up his life again. He had that power and authority. Yeah. From John's Gospel, John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh. Now we were in verses 4 and 5, now we're in 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We talked about that last time. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There in verse 2, where it says, um, that eternal life which was with the Father. Do you remember, those of you who were here last time, we talked about uh, up there in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, that imperfect tense in the Greek which indicated that which had always been was pre-existent uh, reality. It speaks to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was alive before the beginning and continues on. And here we have the same thing here. 
uh, in that same uh, Greek construction, that which was with the Father. He was with the Father before and continues to be. And he's full of grace and truth. All of you are familiar with John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 16, but uh, perhaps it would be good to go back and read a few verses earlier, starting at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And as if to punctuate that and make it clear who brings that all about in John's first epistle, later on in this little letter here, chapter five, he says this, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true can't know him unless he works on our behalf. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, I came to give them life. I came so that they may have life and have it more abundantly. This is the life that we find joy in. There's lots in this life, temporary life, that we find joy in. Yesterday there was a lot of comments and wonderful uh, remembrances of, of joyful things that happened during Claudia's uh, life. And, th- and, and we, we all have those things, things that we find joy in, whether it's a, a, a new house, whether it's uh, our children, whether it's... Uh, you know, pick your, pick your hobby, pick your pleasure, pick your meal, whatever it is. Lots to find joy in this life. And yet, compared to the, the joys of the life to come, these things are just shadows. In Christ is fullness of joy. And that brings me to the last point there in verse 3. We, we come now out of the Uh, out of that parenthetical. And in fact, uh, John, I think, may very well have been taking lessons from the Apostle Paul when it came to grammar and syntax. Because Paul is famous for these really, really, really long sentences, you know. Like (laughs) this one uh, goes on and on and on. And and yet, finally, in verse 3, we come to the main verb. And the main verb is, we proclaim. He's saying, what we have seen and heard from the, uh, from the beginning, we are proclaiming to you. And he says that here, uh, so that you may have fellowship with us. Again, the pastoral heart of the Apostle John comes out. He doesn't want to be divided from the believers who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, but have been confused and distressed by the false teachers and the, uh, the uh, afflictions and the uncertainties that all that has caused. He wants an end to that divisiveness that false teaching always brings. And so 
We find joy in the witnesses, their reliability. We find joy in their, their authority as they verify that what they saw and heard and touched and experienced was genuine. And so now, fellowship is the result. And we find joy in that. I know I've mentioned this before in other contexts, but it never ceased to amaze me in all the travels that I did uh, and have done around the world. Whether I spoke the language or not when I landed there, when we were met by believers, it was as if we were meeting family. Always. Again, from a language standpoint, we may not have a clue about what each other was saying. But uh, from body language and eye contact and the joy of greetings and sometimes the, the physical expressions. I'll never forget the first time I went to Bolivia and Brother Kiespert down there who comes up to about here on me and weighs half what I do came up to me in 14,000 foot elevation at the airport, oxygen depleted. And he wraps his arms around me and starts jumping up and down. He was so excited. And I was just trying to hold on. <laughs> but he had my arms pinned, so. Uh, it was a blessing. Just that feeling at home with one another because of the the, the, the like faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. This fellowship that is focused here is twofold, or kind of a two-sided thing, that you may have fellowship with us. He desires that fellowship with the believers. So there's the fellowship with the apostles, as, as opposed to the false teachers who have been driving wedges in between people. As they experience a, with the apostles salvation that's lived out in the company of those who are the actual true witnesses to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for us, of course, the apostles are not among us physically, but they are among us in the words they have left behind by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We find our joy in fellowship with other believers um, magnified and solidified to the degree that we are all faithful to God's revealed word. To the degree that we depart from this and go elsewhere for revelation, to that degree our fellowship is harmed. Because if I only have, uh, if I have joy in, in whatever thing I think that God has said to me, but nobody else can verify it. I got no joy in that. Because I don't know if it's true or not. No matter how much you might insist that it's from God. If I can't verify that by this, that everyone by the Spirit of God, since ever, ever it was penned, has verified, then doesn't mean it isn't true. But it does mean that, well, as Paul would say, as said to the Corinthians, keep it to yourself. Because if there's no translation, then it's no benefit to anybody but yourself. 
So we have fellowship with the apostles through his word. Now, but not just there. It's not that we all just believe in the same book. I'm, I'm a, that's not enough. Um, on Facebook, I'm part of this book called Middle Earth. And it's both, mostly a book, um, a, a Facebook page about J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion, all that other stuff. And if you guys are not Tolkien nerds, that's okay. But, uh, everybody on that page supposedly is a Tolkien fan, and yet you wouldn't believe the arguments that go on and on between the purists and between those, oh, there's a new Amazon series coming out, and they are just ripping Tolkien to shreds, and just, oh, people are just in, are livid about this, and they're all going at each other. They all say they're fans of the same books. But they are not really bound together. And sometimes the fellowship, um, okay, Tolkien fans will recognize it. Anyway, it, the, it, the fellowship is broken. <laughs> because they don't know Tolkien. And usually the ones that are the loudest um, critics of the purists are the people who are, I mean, you see it through the whole thing. It's postmodernism. It's like, I'm going to take whatever he said, and I'm going to make it whatever I want it to mean, and I'm going to redefine everything, and uh, so therefore it's fine. If that's all you've got, is just, I mean, there are lots of people out there that thump the Bible and have memorized it. I met a, I met a great guy in prison when I wasn't an inmate. I, I was ministering there. Make that clear. I was doing some ministry there. The chaplain's assistant was a convicted murderer. He'd murdered his mother. That guy knew more scripture than anybody I've ever met before or since. He was, but he quoted it like the devil quotes it. And he did it to try to confuse the gospel and undermine the work of believers that were there. That guy was evil. Because he did not fellowship with God. He knew the book. I mean, I've done a lot of teaching uh, uh, in uh, biblical hermeneutics as well, and you start getting into Bible interpretation, and there's lots and lots of critics out there that attack uh, the text. You gotta wonder why these people, with all their ABC degrees behind their name, that go on and on and on, that they spend their life and their academic career studying a book that they hate, and spend their entire academic career trying to prove how it's wrong. It's a, it's remarkable. You have to have fellowship with the Godhead as well. And the only way that that can happen is through Jesus Christ. Again, he is the word who became flesh. He is the revelation of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, as John says in John chapter 1. That is what we should long for. By all means, memorize the scriptures away. Devote your life to studying it, absolutely. 
But don't neglect the author when you're doing that. Because that's where the real joy is. The psalmist speaks of this. If you'll turn back to Psalm 16. I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's not long, but I want you to think about the blessings of fellowship with the one true and living God. The psalmist says this so beautifully. David is the author. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So there's that fellowship aspect with the saints, right? The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. This speaks directly to what, we, what John is speaking of here. In the face of uncertainty, in the face of affliction, in the face of division, in the face of false teaching, we will not be shaken when we are in the presence of the one true and living God. The one who blesses us beyond our ability to instruct. The one who guides us and counsels us through his word. Even in, in the night, even in times where it seem more despairing and dark and hopeless, even in those times, he is there to instruct us. Therefore, David says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This is the complete joy that John wants for us as we trust in the Lord's Redeemer. Notice this next verse, which uh, definitely ties this in. This is a messianic psalm. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is one of those uh, prophecies that's fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is why John is writing. That you and I might know this kind of joy. The commentator Matthew Henry said, See to what the gospel revelation tends to advance us far above sin and earth and to carry us to blessed communion with the Father and the Son. That is the joy that John desires for us. And no matter what falsehood or, or affliction threatens the body of Christ, you can experience that joy through him. It comes with the, sincere, the, the certainty of the witness, both for the one who witnesses and the one who hears. 
These witnesses, the apostles, gave a certain witness. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been worth very much. Paul asked the question in 1 Corinthians 14, 8, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? John is saying, we've given you a distinct sound, a distinct call to come to the, the one who uh, obviously is the embodiment of the eternal life of God because he's one with the Father. Because of the reality and certainty of the apostolic witness to the living Christ, who in turn witnesses to the reality of the magnificent Father, you and I may know what Calvin says is the complete and perfect happiness which we obtain through the gospel. No matter what errors, divisions, and opposition comes our way. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, fill our hearts with joy as we meditate upon your word, as, as your spirit teaches us through it what Christ desires to teach us. And help us, Lord, to walk in the confidence that, that you give us because of that. Not just in the book itself, but in the one whom it reveals, the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. I pray that you would grant to all of us uh, that, that faith. Grant us, Father, as, uh, as John says here in his epistle, to give us understanding so that we may know you who, who, you who are true. Lord, we thank you for this precious book that desires us to have joy in you. Granted, we pray to us in Jesus' name.